All right. Well, tonight uh, we you will find our passage on, on the book of Judges, chapter 9. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 21. You can find it on page 208 in the Pew Bible. So we'll be looking at uh, the first part of Abimelech's uh, story, uh, this Gideon's son. Of course, uh, he'll be referred to generally as Jeroboam uh, in here, because that was his name. Uh, let Baal contend uh, was what the nickname they gave him. So his name pops up a lot in this chapter. And so we'll be reading about the, the rise of Abimelech and... Uh, and a little little story about trees uh, that uh, um, that one of his brothers tells. So, um, again, you can find this on page 208 in the Pew Bible, Judges chapter 9, verses 1 through 21. Reading from the English Standard Version, hear the word of the Lord. Now Abimelech, the son of Jeroboam, went to Shechem, to his mother's relatives, and said to them, to the whole clan of his mother's family, Say in the ears of all the leaders of Shechem, which is better for you, that all 70 of the sons of Jeroboam rule over you, or that one rule over you? Remember also that I am your bone and your flesh. And his mother's relatives spoke all these words on his behalf in the ears of all the leaders of Shechem, and their, and their hearts inclined to follow Abimelech. For they said, He is our brother. <coughs> and they gave him 70 pieces of silver out of the house of, of Baal Barit. Uh, which, with which Abimelech hired worthless and reckless fellows who followed him. And he went to his father's house at Ophrah and killed his brothers, the sons of Jeroboam, seventy men on one stone. But Jotham, the youngest son of Jeroboam, was left, for he hid himself. And all the leaders of Shechem came together, and all Bethmelo. And they went and made Abimelech king by the oak of the pillar at Shechem. When it was told to Jotham, he went and stood on top of Mount Gerizim and cried aloud and said to them, Listen to me, you leaders of Shechem, that God may listen to you. The trees once went out to anoint a king over them, and they said to the olive tree, Reign over us. But the olive tree said to them, Shall I leave my abundance by which gods and men are honored and go hold sway over the trees? And the tree said to the fig tree, You come and reign over us. But the fig tree said to them, Shall I leave my sweetness and my good fruit and go and hold sway over the trees? And the tree said to the vine, You come and reign over us. But the vine said to them, Shall I leave my wine that cheers God and men and go hold, and go hold sway over the trees? Then all the trees said to the bramble, You come and reign over us. And the bramble said to the trees, If in good faith you are anointing me king over you, then come and take refuge in my shade. But if not, let fire come out of the bramble and devour the cedars of Lebanon. Now, therefore, if you have acted in good faith and integrity when you made Abimelech king, and if you have dealt with uh, well with Jeroboam and his house and have done to him as his deeds deserve, for my father fought for you and risked his life and delivered you from the hand of Midian, and you have risen up against my father's house this day and have killed his son, 70 men on one stone, and have made Abimelech, the son of his female servant, king over the leaders of Shechem, because he is your relative, if you have then acted in good faith and, and with integrity with Jeroboam and with his house this day, then rejoice in Abimelech and let him also rejoice in you. But if not, let fire come out from Abimelech and devour the leaders of Shechem and Beth Milo. And let fire come out from the leaders of Shechem and from Beth Milo and devour Abimelech. And Jotham ran away and fled and went to Beer and lived there because of Abimelech, his brother. 
Thus ends the reading of God's holy word. So when kids get to a certain age, they like to, they want to hear spooky stories. It tells a scary story. And then you think about it as a parent, you're like, how scary do I want to make this? Because, you know, because how badly do I want them coming to my room in the middle of the night? Right? So, um, so they tend not to be very scary. <laughs> so, uh, but there's that famous fictional uh, um, urban horror tale about the killer who was calling the babysitter from inside the house. And, well, our story is kind of like that one. Uh, because uh, it, so far in the judge's uh, story, the oppressors uh, have come from outside of God's people. But here is the son of the last judge who comes and brings chaos and blood to Israel, even to his own family. And we are also treated to a wonderful parable about bramble bushes and trees. So tonight we begin the story of Abimelech, the son of Gideon, Gideon who fancied himself to be king, and Abimelech decided to make himself an actual king. And uh, and this is really a, uh, but his kingship, so-called, ended up just becoming a short-lived uh, a bloody regional warlord. That's all really all he was for about three years. Um, but in this story, we can see how when it comes to problems in the church, sometimes the calls are coming from inside the house. And, uh, and we're also going to take a look at what this, uh, the story about trees and brambles can teach us about the dangers of uh, inherent in poor leadership. So first, uh, let's consider the pro- how problems can arise within the church in verses 1 through 6. And we're, and we're presented with what we can only call a, a conniving coup uh, with Abimelech. And so Abimelech, uh, um, you know, his mom was from Shechem. She was a concubine uh, there, and, uh, and he uh, belonging to Gideon. And so he went back to his hometown in Shechem. And now Shechem is interesting. It's, it was never officially conquered by the Israelites. <coughs> So Shechem is technically a Canaanite city that is, you know, you could say in subjection to the Israelites. They're saying, hey, we're not going to cause trouble. You know, we'll make a deal with you. Just don't kill us and let us live in the land and we won't, make, we won't cause problems. And, uh, and, and uh, you know, Abimelech is obviously taking his namesake seriously. His name means my father is the king. And, uh, and so, you know, if his father was good enough to play at being royalty, well, Abimelech says, I might as well be royalty. So he's going to establish his own, his own royal house. Now, it wasn't uncommon in, um, in empires, like in the Roman Empire, when they were trying to figure out who would be emperor. It wasn't uncommon for people to you know, go and court other people and say, hey, you know, uh, for people to say, hey, we'd like this guy to be emperor. Why? Because he's related to us. Because that, that's going to be good for us, right? And so... Um, and so this isn't unusual in the ancient world. And so Abimelech reaches out to his mother's family and, uh, and says, hey, you know, wouldn't it be better to have a hometown boy be your king rather than 70 kings from somewhere else? Uh, you know, wouldn't that bring some benefits to you to have me in there? So Abimelech, Abimelech is quite the politician. And they said, absolutely, it sounds good to us, and, uh, uh, but, they, uh, but they knew what that was going to require. Uh, it was going to require a purging of any potential suitors, and they didn't want to do the job, so they said, okay, well, then we'll give you 70 pieces of silver, uh, and, uh, which uh, essentially one shekel of silver per life that he was about to take, which is actually quite a deal. Uh, 
considering that uh, our Lord was given up for 30 pieces of silver, that, uh, that, you could, that the, the life of a slave was, uh, was generally uh, viewed between 20 and 30 shekels of silver, and he got them for a shekel apiece. <coughs> and so uh, Bimelech goes and he, he hires some, some ruffians, some ruthless, violent men. The author describes them as worthless and reckless men. Uh, and he slaughters them. And that he does so on a single stone. One is fairly gruesome as you think about how long that must have taken. Uh, and how horrifying that must have been. Uh, but also suggests some type of religious execution. And the fact that they paid him out of the treasury of Baal Barit. Which means the Lord of the Covenant. Uh, which is the pagan god Baal. Um, that it means that this is a, some sort of pagan Canaanite ritual execution. But uh, one of his brothers got away, and then we'll come back to Jotham in a bit. But with that nasty, uh, bloody bit done, the leaders of Shechem and, and the other town, Beth Milo, uh, they, they gathered together to proclaim Abimelech king. And all of this happens within uh, the northern tribe of Manasseh. And, uh, and so it just kind of hangs out there. We're not really expected to believe that any other tribes follow suit, or even the whole tribe of Manasseh. Follow it in, and so it's interesting how uh, the author of Judges really focuses in on this little regional warlord and what happened here. Uh, and so, but what we learn here is that leadership legacies matter. The legacy of leadership matters because all of this occurred, all of this happened because Gideon had to have himself a Canaanite concubine from Shechem. I mean, think about that. If Gideon had just restrained himself to his many other wives and 70 sons, they would still be alive. But instead, he he couldn't control himself, apparently. Uh, um, And also consider how Shechem is the same area where Jacob had had his family and all his, everyone that was with him put away their false gods and idols as they, as they came in. Uh, it was the place where Joshua had renewed the covenant after the victory uh, and taking of the land. What a great reversal of, of that heritage that, of Jacob and Joshua. But of course, what a reversal of their most recent heritage from Gideon. Uh, they did not remember Gideon well. did not treat Gideon well. The Deroth Davis, he, wrote on, he writes on this passage, he says, Apostasy from God and ingratitude towards his servants tend to go hand in hand. If the leaders of God's people, if the leaders of his church forget God, if they live as if he or his word doesn't really matter in their lives, why should the leaders expect to have their own legacies honored or remembered? Whatever Gideon's faults were, and we did talk about those previously, he did in fact bring a great deliverance to the people of Israel, and his memory, his, you know, his sons deserve far better than they deserved. You know, it's interesting, I was thinking, this reminded me of uh, just a couple of years ago um, uh, when uh, uh, impassioned but ultimately ignorant college students in Wisconsin were pulling down statues of abolitionist soldiers who died fighting the Civil War in the name of fighting racism. We'll show racism. We'll destroy these abolitionist statues. 
right? Not quite remembering what was going on or taking the time to even figure it out. But beyond that, we, we, we see that what we leave behind to the next generation does matter. Gideon did leave an incredible history, memory of the great faith uh, by which he defeated uh, the Midianites. Um, but, uh, but the way he ended his life ultimately ended, brought about tragedy in Israel. And so we ought to consider our own place, as the author of Hebrews tells us, to consider the great cloud of witnesses that surround us in faith and improve upon that to improve even our own character and deeds based upon the wonderful and godly heritage we have. We have to be concerned with raising up diligently the next generation in faith teaching them the scriptures, but also how to live according to the commands of God by our own example. But as we mentioned earlier, Gideon, Jeroboam, also left behind a legacy of idolatry. For some unspecified reason, Gideon needed something more than God. He needed something more than God's word, something more than his tabernacle, which was at Shiloh. So he fashioned for himself an idol, one that would fit his life and his needs at the time. It just wasn't the true God. It was, uh, you know, it's, I heard one guy describe it as uh, ball burrito. Uh, the balls were kind of like a do-it-yourself God, a do-it-yourself religion. Just kind of just make, your, make up a God and just kind of, and you'll just take it and make it work for you. And we need to see here that the idolatries that we make allowance for now can actually have disastrous results in the future. Uh, you know, we don't want to be like Hezekiah, who, uh, who went and after he messed up and, had, and invited uh, the king of Babylon to come inspect the treasury. And God said, oh, well, you know, now that you've done this, and you've basically put your trust in the Babylonians rather than in me. Then, you know, there's disasters going to come down upon you, but not in your lifetime. I'll do it somewhere else. And he's like, well, good. It's not going to happen while I'm alive. Okay, fine. It's like we don't want Hezekiah's approach. All right. That is not the way to approach life. But we see this happen in a variety of ways. You know, in Sunday school, we've been doing that uh, study on, um, on Christianity in America with Stephen Nichols. And he talked about the halfway covenant. You all remember that? They talk about the halfway covenant. And what that was is in the, um, during the, the, the colonial period, um, there were people who had been baptized in the church but had never professed faith in the gospel. And, uh, and they were not essentially, they weren't active in the church. But, um, and so they weren't allowed to take the Lord's Supper because they, hadn't, uh, because they hadn't done that. But they had grown up and become adults and had families of their own, had children of their own. And so they, they, and they were influential in the town. They were people of means. And so because of a, you know, a variety of social and stu- superstitious reasons, they wanted to have their children baptized and made part of the church, just like them. And the pastors feeling, the, the leaders feeling the local social pressure, the ministers caved. And, and so they made a deal. And they said, look, uh, we'll baptize your kids, you know, and they can be part of the church, you know, and, and kind of, and we'll just try to make the best of it. But, and that's what they call this halfway covenant, where you had people who were people who uh, essentially weren't professing believers who had been baptized in the church, who brought, who brought their children and got them baptized. And it was essentially a, a, a sort of producing 
what we call nominalism. Christians in name only. And so it, and it brought in, you know, it, it was proved to be not a good maneuver, but something that was morally and spiritually disastrous to the church. Another example of this is uh, Charles Finney, one of the key leaders in the Second Great Awakening. And uh, now I'm one who, who believes that there was some good that was accomplished in the Second Great Awakening, but there was also a lot of damage that was done through the Second Great Awakening. Because that was the one where they, uh, Charles Finney came up with what he called the new measures. He said, look, if you just get these things in place, you can bring about revival. You can just, if you, if you get, uh, you know, if, if you play the music and if you call out notorious sinners who are in the room by name, if you have an anxious bench where people can come sit and uh, who are anxious about the state of their souls and they can sit there, and if you do altar calls, if you do all this, if you just put these things together, then the Holy Spirit will show up and you'll have revival. And, and so revival became something you could manufacture, that you could produce by just putting certain elements together. It became kind of a formula. And, uh, but, but Charles Finney, who came up with all that stuff, was a Presbyterian. He was a Presbyterian minister. Even though when he went for his ordination exam, he said, I don't accept the church's confession of faith, the Westminster Confession of Faith. He rejected it. And, but he was a very talented guy, and they needed ministers, so they ordained him anyway. <laughs> and he did a lot of damage to the church. And so, and, and, you know, Gideon was a great example of faith in his victory over the Midianites, but his legacy was beset by his idolatry and his lust. And which produced Abimelech. Abimelech, Abimelech, who was 50% Canaanite, 50% Israelite, but his actions were 100% non-Israelite. Effectively, Abimelech became an oppressor of Israel and, and, and from within. Uh, but as I said, it only occurred within one part of the tribe of Manasseh. And so he just was just kind of this little regional warlord that was just shedding blood all over the place. But there are times where if we're not careful, um, the, the danger can come, rise up from within the church. And so, um, and this leads us to the parable, which is uh, what it, calling the, the dangers of bramble leadership. The dangers when we, when we invite brambles to, to, to rule over us. Jotham, who is the only brother to survive Abimelech's brutality, uh, comes near Shechem, close enough for them to hear him, but not so close that they can catch him, Right? And he has a message for the Shechemites and, uh, and, uh, and the other townspeople and Abimelech. And, uh, and, and, so the, and, from the, and so from this parable, the, the one thing we can say is that shopping for leaders is a bad idea. Right? Shopping for leaders is a bad idea. Warm body syndrome, we like to call it. We need somebody. Anybody will do who's willing. Uh, you know, and so the, the parable is not here a blast against like the monarchy, like just as a as a governmental system. Some of, some have argued that, but essentially what the, what this is revealing is the problem of seeking out and accepting unqualified and even immoral leaders. Now it may, it may seem odd to us to hear this story, but it was actually uh, uh, surprisingly common to have a morality tale told about trees who were acting like people. All right, there were several. There's several recorded instances found even outside of Israelite literature uh, in, in that time period. And so, basically, the story goes: you have, you have a group of trees that are going around asking the most productive trees uh, to become king and reign over them. 
And uh, they start with the olive tree, from which uh, the people would get their anointing oil that was used for kings and priests. And uh, then they went to the fig tree, uh, who uh, was the very picture of agricultural abundance and, uh, and even peaceful rest. Uh, the idea of, of rest for the Israelite was every man sitting under the shade of his own fig tree. Uh, and, uh, and the vine, which produced grapes uh, uh, for wine, which were used in certain sacrificial offerings, like what they call libations, where they pour out an offering, but also uh, wine, which would cheer men for obvious reasons. Zappa. So, and now all of these didn't want to give up their usefulness and productivity for the sake for the, for the, the sake of uh, a sketchy kingship proposition. So finally, the trees, uh, having been turned down everywhere else, go to the bramble, and the bramble graciously accepts. The, the, bram, the bramble invites them to come take refuge in his shade, or else to be destroyed by his fire. Now, the irony here is that the bramble uh, may invite people to may invite them to come rest under his shade, but bramble bushes cannot offer shade; they're too low to the ground. And I mean, we're talking about bramble bushes that, that go across the ground and versus trees. They're not providing any shade. It's not, and, uh, and, but uh, bramble could catch fire and do a ton of damage. So it's not, so he, so, he, so he can't provide anything good, but it can do a lot of hurt. And this brings us, uh, brings uh, Jotham and us to the moral of his tale. He reminds them of all his father did for them and says that if they have acted in good faith when they were, you know, slaughtering all his brothers, uh, then he says, hey, if that's if you guys acted in faith and making Abimelech king, well, then may, may y'all have a wonderful life together. Okay, y'all have a great time. But if you haven't, and we know they didn't, then may Abimelech and the leaders of Shechem and Beth Milo destroy each other. So, and we kind of go back to what were the trees doing? Well, they kept looking around for someone who would say and do what they wanted them to do and say, even though it ended up being someone completely unworthy. And, and so we need to be careful, particularly about leadership when it comes to the people of God. We must be careful, in particular, about those who lead the Church of Christ. This is why when we look at the qualifications for an elder or a deacon, for an officer in the church, uh, the, care for, the, 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 the qualifications are all character qualifications. It's not, he's got to have a four-year degree, and he's got to have this, and blah, 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 that. It's, what, it's godly character that is demonstrated in the home. There we go. It's helpful. <laughs> All right. So, um, uh, but we and so uh, now I like the way that Peter puts it in First Peter. Um, he says that the elders, uh, the elders should um, who serve, who serve, they serve as under shepherds of Christ, who are serving willingly with compassion and gentleness. But 2 Timothy um, chapter 4, verses 3 and 4 really highlights why this matters. He says, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. 
You know, that's been true for ever since Paul wrote those words. How much more is it true with the advent of smartphones and the internet? And how many people can just pull up and go and find someone that's going to tell us what we want to hear, right? If we only seek those leaders who would tell us what we want to hear, then we will open up ourselves to all kinds of abusive leadership, even the kind that we find with the Bimelite. It's one of the reasons when I was taking like my church government class, uh, nothing more exciting than church polity. Uh, um, and so uh, Dr. Waters was teaching it, and you know, and one of the things he said, uh, he, he said, in, uh, as far as the session goes, the elders in the church, who do they represent? And we've been talking about church government. So the student says, well, they represent the congregation. He says, no. The elders represent Christ. They represent the ministry of Christ. And that means that when we, when we teach the word, we can't hold back. We can't hide the portions that we don't like or the parts that our congregation might not want to hear. We've been talking for weeks in Luke about, about money and possessions and idolatry and searching our hearts and stuff like that. It has been uncomfortable. <laughs> All right? Uncomfortable. But necessary. And so we cannot shrink back uh, from those things. And, but, and we do not want people uh, in leadership who will shrink back, who will only seek out what they feel like their, their church members want to hear. And we have to be careful about this because spiritual leadership is serious business. Paul warned the elders of the Ephesian church when he was uh, at his departure in the book of Acts that when he leaves, there would arise from within the church wolves who will not spare the sheep. Now, Paul was not Gideon in the best way possible. He never fell into idolatry. He never took up with pagan concubines. Yet even after he left the church, just as he said, as he left this world and went on to, to be with the Lord in glory, the church would contend with internal problems. False teachers can do a lot of damage in the church. Because false teachers don't spare the flock, but seek to fleece the flock and devour them. Others, even who are not false pastors, can come and wreak havoc in the church. I know a church uh, uh, pastor recently who he and the elders had to let someone know that they were not welcome to attend their church. Uh, because this person had a reputation already. Because he would come in with 15 of his buddies and come in and just wreck havoc in a church. Just caused all kinds of controversies and problems. And he had already destroyed a couple of churches. And this guy showed up and he had a reputation. And so they, he in the session let this guy know, you are not welcome here. Out. But the question is, how does false teaching work? Well, they, you know, false teachers will tell us the things that we want to hear. Things that appeal to our pride. That appeal to our sense of entitlement. Our sense of... Uh, that, that we've been wronged, right? Uh, and, uh, and, and that you can, and also it appeals to that kind of legalistic uh, uh, thing that, oh, if you just follow these simple steps, you know, if you just follow me, if you just do this, if you just somehow, if you do this, if you just follow these steps, I'll show you the way. Like all the, you know, if you follow these, then, then, then you'll get it. But they always do so by twisting the scriptures. They always do that. Uh, and, 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 and so they, they, they don't just start off with nothing. They just take it and they twist it. Uh, and, and so 
it feels good at first because they affirm us, they tell us how special we are. Um, that's you know, and uh, at some point there's going to be some transaction involved, some point. Um, but it is important that they that the twisting of scripture requires scripture to be involved. You know, false teachers aren't working with something wholly new. Uh, and so um, I remember uh, Creflo Dollar. He's a prosperity preacher out in Atlanta, and he's been going strong for many years. And um, I remember hearing a teaching that he was doing on uh, Philippians chapter 2, verse 6. Now, to get the context here, this is a famous passage about the humiliation and exaltation of Christ. And, and Paul using that as an example to encourage Christians to consider, to consider ourselves. Uh, well, he gives an exhortation essentially toward love and humility in the church. As we consider one another. And he says, you know, have the same mind as Christ who, you know, did not consider equality with God something grasp, but, but emptied himself and was obedient to God, even to the point of dying uh, and, and on a cross. And, and God exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name. And one day every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, the glory of the God the Father. It's one, one of my favorite passages. Love that passage. So, uh, so um, he zeroes in on verse 6. And of course he uses the King James Version, which is harder to comprehend. And, that's, and so it sounds obscure, but it says, uh, Christ who did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. And so, he, and so he uses that to twist and to turn into an exhortation that we should live as if we are equal with God. He says, well, Christ didn't consider it robbery. To think himself equal with God, and neither should we. And so we should live like we are equal with God. I mean, just think about what he did. Like, I, if I wasn't so horrified by this teaching, I would be impressed. I'm like, you're bold, I'll give you that. All right? Because he takes, he takes a, a text about radical humility and love sacrificial love, a passage that says that we should actually consider the interests of others ahead of our own, and he twists it around with the application that we should exalt ourselves to the place of God. But many are led astray by teaching like this. Then false teachers will receive their reward in the end. Unless Creflo Dollar repents, he will receive his reward and it will be with fire. I do pray that he repents. But for us, you know, we just talked about a passage this morning about where Jesus says, you know, uh, that temptation is certain, but woe to those through whom it comes. Better a millstone wrapped around his neck and he's cast into the sea and he calls one of my little ones to sin. All right, false teachers are going to get it in the end. Justice will be done. But for us here tonight, we are exhorted uh, here in Abimelech's case to be careful, particularly about those who we put in leadership, places of leadership in the church. And further, we are exhorted to leave a legacy of faithfulness to the Lord that is that encourages and calls the next generation to walk in even greater faithfulness and to walk in our steps after us. 
This is not a call to perfection. It's not a call to uh, know exactly whether or not the, uh, the, the, um, the next generation is going to follow. Um, you know, it's just I, I've shared it before. It's one of my favorite things to think about is um, Matthew Henry's mom when she uh, their dad died and she had raised them, her, him and his brother up. And, and she taught them and she sat them down. They're in their teens. She sat them down. She said, OK, look. I have taught you the scriptures. I have taught you the catechisms. I have taught you the way of the Lord. I have discharged my spiritual duty to you as your mother. If you turn away from the Lord, it is on you. (laughs) Not me. (laughs) Like she laid it down, you know, and it's just like, but, but that is what we need to do to discharge that duty. And then to let them know you are responsible to follow. It's not crystal ball. Oh, if we do this and this and that. We we can't do those things. What we're called to do is to be faithful to the Lord today. To be faithful in how we appoint godly leaders in the church. To remove those who are not. And then we entrust all the rest to the Lord. Knowing that God will be faithful. That he will do what is just. And he above all will care for his church. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your goodness to us in, as a church. Father, we thank you that even when wolves get into the flock, Lord, that you root them out. Lord, we do pray, Father, for, uh, for a renewal to come to the church. We pray, Lord, that you would bring renewal. That it would, bring, that it would begin with pastors and pulpits. That it would begin with congregations and churches. And that it would spread forth, Father, as we, as we, as we repent of sin. As we, as we desire and yearn after and pursue holiness and godliness in our lives. And Lord, we pray that you would give us diligence, faithfulness. Lord, to leave a faithful legacy uh, to our children and those who come after us. That they would have a strong foundation to build upon. And that, and, and that we will continue to build and we continue to be strengthened. And Lord, we do pray that you would give us wisdom, particularly when it comes to understanding the scriptures, to, uh, to, uh, to handling the word of God. We pray, Father, for pastors who, who will diligently and faithfully handle the word. That will repent when we are confronted by it and convicted of our sins. That we would not shy away from it, but that we would lean into it. And that we would submit ourselves to your holy word. We pray your spirit to be active in us, Father, as your people. As we read the word in our personal devotions, may we hear you speaking to us as we read it. Lord, may, uh, may we hide your word in our hearts that we may not sin against you. That we would worship and adore you. That we would rejoice in you. And that we would walk in greater, greater faithfulness and holiness and encourage one another as long as the day is called today. Or that no one would be left behind, that no one be left upon the ground. And that we would encourage and strengthen one another as we continue from this great cloud of witnesses that we have. Strengthen the faith with our eyes set on Jesus as we run the race and seek our reward. And we pray for your help and strength and blessing as we do this. In Christ's wonderful name we pray. Amen.